according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn the word of God to Matthew chapter 3 this morning. Matthew chapter 3. I've given all prayer meetings permission to go along just so long as they're praying about me. <laughs> if they're not praying for me, then they've got to quit their prayer meeting right on time and get on in here for Bible class. But as long as they're praying for me, then they can... Uh, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. We'll have the prayer meeting in here shortly. Sometimes uh, those get going a little long, and that's uh, well, that's a blessing to you when the... Spirit has you burdened over particular matters. We are dealing with the baptism of Jesus Christ and the attendant details as pertaining to John the Baptist. Now, I'm going to open in prayer here in a moment. We um, had some harmony of the Gospels that we had. We're a little out of sorts because we haven't been here for two weeks. We'll get this uh, lined up here. We had originally given out a Harmony of the Gospels for this study, and we're following that Harmony of the Gospels. But about two weeks ago, we discovered that the Harmony we've been using for about three years now has an error in it. And so uh, in the process of going through item by item in our Life of Christ series, we determined where that error was, and it came in the section headings as it pertained to truths about John the Baptist and the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So we have since then fixed the error in the Harmony of the Gospels, and we now have a uh, better harmony to hand out to people that has the correct section headings and has the correct um, item numerations. And that's what we're going to be working on starting here this morning. So this portion here where we deal with the uh, baptism of Jesus, that's where we are, under the, the first section in this outline, the baptism of Jesus. We're also going to include, in the process of teaching this, we're going to go ahead and include elements from the, from the error, from the mistake. We're going to include elements from the missing portion of the uh, incorrect harmony that we had handed out once upon a time. So you won't, over, you won't miss any content as it pertains to truths about John the Baptist. You're just going to get it here in this section as we uh, approach the baptism and then the other events associated with the baptism. All right? So, all that being said, we've been functioning with a defective harmony for three years now, and it's quite embarrassing that no one caught it until I caught it in my own study here just a couple weeks back. But uh, it is repaired, and uh, we're ready to proceed. Before we begin this morning, let's take time for silent prayer. We can set aside some distractions and ask the Father to bless our study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege of studying your word. We recognize this is a grace provision. You didn't have to give it to us. You didn't have to let us be born and live in a country of freedom and didn't have to make provision for a lampstand in this location, but you've done all that, Father. You've supplied a lampstand in this location where the Word of God is taught. You've supplied the logistical grace necessary to get us here, the finances, the transportation, the time out of our work schedule or school schedule or whatever else is going on. Father, these are believers that have assembled together for the purpose of receiving instruction. And we ask that you would bless their and reward their positive volition. We ask that you would sanctify this time, set aside distractions, and protect us, Father, from those that would come in here and seek us harm. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 3. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're introduced under point one to the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, as Pastor Ralph Braun used to like to call him, the term baptistes with reference to the verb baptizo, and uh, baptizo means to baptize, and so he is indeed a baptizer, somebody who baptizes, it's like a, a farmer is somebody who farms, or a, a fisherman is somebody who fishes, see, a carpenter is someone who does carpentry. Well, he's a baptizer as in terms of somebody who baptizes rather than a Baptist, which we think about in terms of American denominations. 
Why is everybody so far back this morning? Somehow these rows got pushed back, didn't they? All right. We're going to, I may come forward just to teach a little closer to you guys. <laughs> but John the Baptist undertook, John the Baptizer undertook a wilderness preaching ministry as the herald of the Christ. As we read it in verses 1 and 2, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching. Not evangelizing, which is euangelizamai, but preaching. Teruso, he is preaching, proclaiming. His ministry is primarily to believers, specifically to carnal believers, to those that are so caught up in this world they haven't had true time for worship in spirit and in truth in ages. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Having a change of thinking that these believers need to get in gear because their Christ is on the scene and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're going to talk about this a little bit more uh, this morning. We introduced it a couple weeks back. I realize we're two weeks off from this study, and so some of this might be a little rusty. Don't worry about it. We'll get you brought back up to speed. I'll get myself back up to speed here in the process of teaching this. Subpoint A, his proclamation, repent. And we've studied this many, many times. Metanoeo means change your thinking. Meta is change, uh, noose as a mind, noeo is to think. Change your thinking, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And we will see some more of these specific applications for a change of thinking in, uh, not necessarily in the Matthew account. There are some other accounts, the Luke account. Uh, people are coming to him and asking, well, what should we do? And he gives specific suggestions for how they can conduct their lives because the way they're presently conducting their life is criminal. It is, it's uh, not glorifying to Jesus Christ. It's not pleasing to God the Father. But he says, change your thinking for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. This would be a similar message that could be given today. Because today, in the Laodicea period of the church age, we have a mindset that says that uh, the mockers that have come with their mocking saying that uh, where is the promise of his coming. We have a mindset in the dispensation of the church that is neglecting the concept of imminency. And believers, rather than living daily in anticipation of the return of Christ, are living in this world and for this world. are all caught up in the things of this world. And those are the believers that need to have a change of thinking in, with respect to the concept of imminency. That at any moment we can be called home. At any moment, we can be standing before that judgment seat of Christ, and each one of us will give an account of ourselves before God. And so this message is, is very pertinent. Uh, I've spoken a couple of times now how the this era of Israel's history is very similar to our era of church history, in the sense that we're both living under the concept of imminency. As the Old Testament was brought to a close in the uh, in the closing passages there of Malachi, we'll see today the promise was of the coming forerunner of, of Elijah going before the Christ, and that this concept of imminency was left there, and they're left hanging. And a hundred years goes by, and two hundred years goes by, and three hundred years goes by, four hundred years goes by. We're we're in that intertestamental period, and the only reason we know it's an intertestamental period is because we're down the road looking back at it, <laughs> all right? But as they're going through it, they don't know that another testament's coming. They don't know that there's going to be 400 years of silence after Malachi before another prophet arises to announce the coming Christ. All they know is that time keeps passing, time keeps passing, and they're waiting for this coming Christ. Those who are truly students of the Word of God, specifically Daniel, are able to mark the 69 weeks as they go by because that has been given from the decree and some concepts there that we're going to look at possibly today and possibly uh, one week from today. But the concept of imminency is very important. They are waiting for the arrival of their Christ. That is, those who are truly hungry, those that are truly on positive volition. I believe the Religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those that are in charge, they're not waiting for the coming of their Christ. In fact, they rather resent the coming of their Christ because his arrival signals the end of their control over things. And uh, you start to wonder why it is that they were so resistant to Christ coming along. Well, it's because he wasn't playing their game. He wasn't marching to their drum, and they're about to lose their control as far as they were able to exercise it under the Roman uh, tolerance. And so some of those studies will be important as well as we see the conflict, the friction between Christ and the Pharisees. 
So this proclamation, repent, change your thinking, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It was a message primarily for believers, not unbelievers. He did not come evangelizing, he came preaching. Secondly, his clothing and diet were reminiscent of Elijah. We looked at the similarities a couple weeks back, uh, comparing the description here in, in verse 4 with uh, the description in Second Kings of Elijah. Uh, also, a passage in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 8, a message when Christ was speaking of uh, the uh, Baptist. And he says, what did you go out to see? A man in fine clothing? And uh, in rather a confrontational message, he says, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. He says, you know, this John's a working man. John's out there as a prophet. John's out there in the wilderness. And he's not uh, like these Pharisees and these guys in their fancy schools in Jerusalem and all the rest. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. All right. His clothing and diet were reminiscent of Elijah. We will see the ministry of Elijah here shortly. Point C. John enjoyed unparalleled response to his preaching. As great multitudes came out of Jerusalem, Judea, and the Jordan region in order to be baptized. Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Notice the unparalleled response. Then it says in verse 5, Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now again, this is not a Billy Graham evangelism crusade coming along. These guys that are coming down to the river are not, it's not the equivalent of walking an aisle, so to speak. They're not coming to Christ getting saved and publicly confessing your sins is no part of salvation in any, in any uh, dispensational scheme, alright? But what this is, in terms of a legitimate revival, are believers that are hungry for the Word of God. They're being fed now for the first time in years. And they're recognizing that the, the religion they've, they've had all this time has been worthless for them, and now they're getting doctrine, they're getting teaching, and it's transforming their, their very lives. And I believe this too becomes characteristic of, and a parallel between that day and where we are today. It's stunning how people who've never been exposed to teaching before, but they, they grew up in a church, or they got a background in, in, in legalism, they got a background in, in church, uh, fun and games, so to speak. They get teaching for the first time ever. And they just go, wow, I never knew this was there before. I never knew you could get teaching like this. I didn't know the Bible had all that in there. I didn't know there were churches that taught the Bible like that. And it's the same thing. We see it all the time in our day. It's the same thing that, that John the Baptist receives here. Same thing that Christ received. They, they were stunned. They said, this man teaches with authority. We never heard this before. It's not like the teachers we've ever had. See, and that right there is is such a uh, a knock, not just on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those guys, but really on all phony religion. The fun and game approach to church that says just play the game, you know, pay your uh, nod to Christ, pay your dues, and we'll tell you what to think, we'll tell you how to live, and you'll feel better about yourself and all the rest. All right, these guys, they hear a true prophet. And they haven't had this in, in ages, 400 years, as we say, since Malachi. And they're going out, and this unparalleled response is to the preaching. It's to the preaching. And, and John's given tough messages, as we see when the Pharisees show up. <laughs> Verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? See, now John's a no-fooling-around prophet, and he's teaching, and he's calling names, and he's giving tough messages. And you know that that kind of ministry, the Lord blesses that. He blesses and he honors his word when the word is taught, and is taught without apology, and is taught with, uh, not, uh, with, without any fear, not shrinking away from declaring all things that are profitable. And, and these people that are getting turned on by this, that are getting really excited by the teaching, they're sticking to it. 
And you know positive volition when believers will sit there and get chewed out. <laughs> and they take it because they know they need it. And positive volition says, thank you, Lord, I needed that. Because all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Not just to hold in your hand and tell you you're okay, but it's God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for rebuke, for instruction in righteousness. And sometimes hard-hitting teaching hurts. But believers under positive volition will accept it. And, and the wise man uh, will, will appreciate that uh, rebuke. So when we see this hunger... This is exciting. And this isn't just unbelievers getting saved. These are believers that haven't been fed. Believers that haven't been taught. And now they're getting teaching. And now they're getting excited because they know the kingdom of heaven is near. It is at hand. They've got a concept of imminency once again. Which is what believers today ought to have. They ought to get excited on solid Bible teaching. And they also have to have a daily sense that the rapture could be today. Great multitudes came out of Jerusalem, Judea, and the Jordan region in order to be baptized. Now, this identification with the coming kingdom is very important because this is the ministry of the baptizer here. This will be the ministry of Elijah at second advent. And this is what Malachi was speaking of. This is preparing the hearts of the people for their coming king, preparing the hearts for the coming Christ. Israel has to be prepared to receive the Christ. And uh, it means they've got to cast off the legalism, they've got to cast off all the garbage, and they've got to be, they have their whole heart dedicated to the Lord. And so that's what's going on here. And this, uh, this confession, this uh, repentance is uh, the activity of these believers that are getting ready, that are preparing themselves for the Christ to come and reign over them. And there will be more of that coming up. God will deal with Israel as a nation. And you want to know what it's going to take to prepare Israel for their Christ? It's going to take hell on earth. It's going to take the great tribulation of Israel, the time of Jacob's trouble. Only that kind of discipline, only that kind of corrective rod will humble them. Only that kind of judgment will bring about the repentance necessary for Israel as a nation to be prepared for the coming of their Christ. Nothing short of that would work for Israel as a nation and uh, that is the case, as we see every time, look at all the cycles in the judges. Every time Israel got complacent and they started getting idolatrous, they started forgetting the Lord, well, here comes judgment. And they got humbled. And they cried out, oh Lord, we're sorry, we'll never do it again. <laughs> and they'd start serving the Lord, he'd send them a judge. Okay, And we know how that cycle works, and they did it again, they did it again, they did it again. Finally, swept away into captivity in Babylon, brought back again. Well, this is the ultimate, the final, second advent, when as a nation, the judgment that comes upon them will humble them, will break that rebellious heart, will humble them, bringing about the repentance that will receive their Christ. I had a couple of comments here about Judaism's baptism ritual. Judaism did have a baptism ritual for Gentile proselytes. There is some debate as to whether it even preceded 70 A.D. or not. You may read commentaries that will say, well, John simply borrowed this baptism from the practice of the, of the Jews in order to bring a, a, a Gentile proselyte across and turn him into a Jew and allow him to participate in the functions of, of uh, rabbinic Judaism, say. And I dispute all of that. In all likelihood, that baptism ritual that Judaism performed... Uh, may have never even preceded 70 A.D., and it bears no influence upon John's baptism. Likewise, the Qumran uh, rituals, the Qumran community, the Dead Sea Scroll community, they had a system of water baptism, or a, a ritual in terms of water baptism, but it bears little resemblance to John's mission as well. And uh, a lot of commentaries you might read that try to say, well, John the Baptist wasn't a scene, is pure speculation, and there's no biblical authority for any of that. Likewise, any comment that Jesus Christ himself was in a scene, likewise, there's no biblical basis for any of that. Under point two now, when the religious slash political leaders came to participate in the baptism ritual, John confronted them like Elijah before the prophets of Baal. John confronted them like Elijah before the prophets of Baal. It's no coincidence. 
the, the, the parallel between John the Baptist and Elijah is not just merely their, their uh, dress code, all right? It's not just merely the way that they dress up. It's, uh, the similarity is far beyond that. But in terms of the Holy Spirit that was ministering through both of those men. And I hope we can get a sense for how this works. Now, in Matthew 3, let's just read through this, verses 7 through 10. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? His message of repentance is a warning. And yet he told them that they were not the recipients of that message. They were not the recipients of that message. The message was given to believers. These guys aren't even saved. They're a brood of vipers. They are of their father the devil, as Christ says in John 8. This message of warning was not given to unbelievers, it was given to believers. Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. Your racial arrogance doesn't do you any good. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. When we talk about that axe is ready, judgment is imminent. And when the 69th week is completed, there is a 70th week of total national judgment. Bearing in mind, of course, that... They don't know that there's going to be a church age in between. They don't know there's another testament coming. They don't know the things that we know now in terms of God's timetable. All they know is that after the 69th week, Messiah, your prince, shall be cut off and have nothing. And then the people, uh, the prince of the people who is to come will destroy the temple. Its end will come even with the flood. All right. There is judgment pending after the conclusion of week 69 in Daniel's prophecy. And as I say, if we have time today, we will look at those 70 weeks. Uh, and if not today, then we'll get to it um, one week from today. Now, let's remind ourselves a little bit here about who Elijah was. All right. Where do we find Elijah in the, in the Bible? Kings. First Kings or second Kings? Nope. First Kings. He uh, actually goes to heaven in the first part of 2 Kings, but you can think of Elijah in 1 Kings and Elisha in 2 Kings. All right, 1 Kings 18. This is kind of fun. I may, uh, I may throw out a whole lot of questions tonight in our question and answer time. 1 Kings 18. And the contest here with the prophets of Baal. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible. I won't take the time to read through the whole thing. You can spend quite a bit of time on this. But here he is in a challenge. Verse 19. Now then send and gather to me all Israel and Mount Carmel, at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. You realize Elijah is going to be single-handedly going out against 850 of these false prophets. Well, he's not a timid man. <laughs> and he has fun doing it. He even lets them go first. He even lets them do everything they can do. He says, let's, uh, let's make a test here to see who, uh, who the true God is. To see if, if, if Israel is going to follow Baal or if we're going to follow the Lord. And uh, you guys outnumber me 850 to 1. That's okay. <laughs> and uh, he sets up this contest here. We know how this goes. And they set up their altars and they, they call on their gods to bring fire. And all through this, Elijah has his, uh, sets up his altar. And he's mocking them, which I enjoy in verse 27 came about at noon, and Elijah mocked them. See, they're getting all whipped up into a frenzy here, and Baal's not answering them, and so they're jumping around, and they're going through all these rituals, or even cutting themselves, and shedding their own blood, and doing different things. And uh, he says, call out with a loud voice in verse 27, for he is a god after all. He must be occupied. See, that means maybe he's in the bathroom. <laughs> all right, give him a minute. Uh, maybe he's uh, on a journey. 
Maybe he's out of town. Uh, maybe he's asleep. Wake him up. All right. And then, of course, we know how this turns out. He has his turn at it now, and he doesn't have 450 prophets. He's just all by himself, and he calls out in prayer. And he makes this test so miraculous with all the water poured everywhere that only God could truly have done what, what gets done here. But notice at the end, when all of this is over, after the people have seen, remember there's, there's an audience here, the nation of Israel is observing, and they're observing these prophets of Baal, and they're observing Elijah. And so once the Bible class is accomplished, the... Uh, Details have to be tidied up here, and that includes the execution of these prophets. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, in verse 40. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. In the Old Testament, the prophets had quite an execution ministry. They put false prophets to death. So Elijah's a tough guy. Alright? As he ministered the word of God as he judged Israel, as he accomplished the Lord's will. Quite fascinating, though, after his tremendous victory in chapter 18, we have a tremendous defeat for him in chapter 19, where he runs scared, he's afraid of Jezebel. And he has uh, he flees like a coward. So if you have a tremendous spiritual victory, don't get proud of yourself, because uh, you can fall short in the very next chapter. Now, over in Second Kings, I want you to see something else. Elijah, chapter 2 now, over in 2 Kings. Elijah is getting ready to be promoted. Elijah is one of two men in Scripture that does not physically die. Enoch being the other one way back before the flood in the, in the uh, days prior to the flood. And Elijah is getting ready to be caught up into heaven. So we got one Gentile caught up into heaven. we got one Jew caught up into heaven without physical death. Together they paint a picture of the church, which is neither Jew nor Gentile, and we get raptured out of here when Christ returns. So we have the typology of the rapture in Enoch and Elijah. And it came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. All right, he's getting ready to be promoted, and Elisha knows it's going to happen. And it's interesting, we have the request that he makes for a double portion of Elijah's, of Elijah's spirit. Look, notice in verse 9. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. This is kind of like any last request, any, any gift I might impart. He is, a, he is a prophet of the Lord. Spirit-filled. Now, the Holy Spirit was a little bit different back then because we're accustomed now to the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They didn't have that back then. Very few believers receive the Holy Spirit, and they seem to receive in a finite quantity, whereas we have a total indwelling on an infinite basis. They had the Spirit in a finite quantity. And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your Spirit be upon me. So whatever level of Spirit Elijah had, all right, maybe he had ten gallons. <laughs> all right, we don't know. Whatever, you know, whatever, think of your capacity, all right, in terms of... Uh, um, my Mustang, I think, holds a, has a 13-gallon gas tank. Sharon's van's about a 16, 17-gallon. All right, we got different capacities. You know, whatever, whatever measure of the Spirit. And don't get confused because we're church-age believers and we, we're accustomed. We have so many blessings where He giveth the Spirit without measure. All right, but. Think of yourself now in Old Testament times when very few believers ever even received the Holy Spirit, and sometimes they only received it sporadically, here and there. You know, the Spirit would come upon Samson, he'd have great strength, and then it'd be gone. Or the Spirit would come upon a prophet, and he would prophesy, and then he'd be gone. So whatever the level of spiritual empowerment that Elijah had, Elisha is asking for double portion so if Elijah had 10 gallons, Elisha's about to get 20. Okay? 
There's a lot of principles that get caught up in this, things that we can take forward into the church age and make application on in terms of asking and receiving, because we have the sky is the limit privileges. As sons, we can go and ask whatever, uh, whatever desire the Father puts on our heart. And uh, verse 10, he said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, then it should be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. He has to stay faithful, and if he's faithful and stays to the very end, he will receive it. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens here as Elijah gets caught up and the, uh, the double portion is given to, uh, to Elisha. And so there's a whole lot of things there. If you've never taken the time to study Elijah and Elisha, I would encourage you to do so. We've done Life of Jacob, Life of David, and we're doing Life of Christ now. I kind of got it in my mind, rapture pending and down the road, that we may, we may exactly do that. We may go back and do Elijah and Elisha. We may see this period of the divided monarchy, which is really a period of, of Old Testament history that not a lot gets done with. But there's so much there to teach. And in terms of the ministry that they had, they both typified Christ. Elijah raised one from the dead. Elisha, with a double portion of his spirit, raised two from the dead. And, of course, Jesus Christ raised three from the dead in the, in the uh, gospel record of things as we look at it. So we have a double portion of his spirit that's passed along there to Elisha. And Elisha was a guy likewise. He wasn't fooling around. Elisha didn't... Uh, didn't uh he had tough messages he delivered tough messages he sent bears to handle some uh some uh, punk kids there they you know that cut down on the gang problem in uh on the streets other things that happen here during the life of Elisha now this is why when you glance over to the gospel of Luke we start to understand some things with respect to what John the Baptist was all about Because in Luke 1, when Gabriel is announcing what John the Baptist is going to do, and Zacharias is having trouble figuring out why there's an angel showing up here in the the temple. In Luke 1, he says in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zacharias. Your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. He says, don't name him Elijah, name him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. There's a blessing. Again, on an Old Testament basis. He's not a believer yet. But he does have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. His ministry is a repentance ministry. His ministry is to believers that are, that are uh, reversionistic, believers that are hard-hearted, that are, have lost their first love. Believers that are no longer focused on the Word of God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, and now notice, in the spirit and power of Elijah. In the spirit and power of Elijah. That's why I'm taking the time this morning to show you how that the double portion of that spirit was blessed to be given to Elisha. And now that measure of, this, of the spirit that Elijah, that Elijah had is now being given to John the Baptist. While he's still in Elizabeth's womb, he's given that power that Elijah had, the, the measure of that spirit. He will go in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, preparing the nation of Israel for their coming king. He's not Elijah reincarnated. The Bible totally rejects any belief in reincarnation and is given unto man once to die and after that the judgment we don't die and they get reborn and die and get reborn you know it's not try again like the hindu belief you know if you didn't do so well in this life well you'll come back in the next life and try to do better and keep trying to do better and keep trying to do better all right you got one at bat one life and how short is that life and after that the judgment All right, now notice, move on to point three. John the Baptist understood 
that his ministry was temporary, and the one who was coming would perform a greater baptism. John the Baptist understood that his ministry was temporary, and the one who was coming would perform a greater baptism. Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12. We're going to relate it back to Malachi 3. We're also going to look at Joel 2. And we still have plenty of time left in this session that we can really get a good handle on this here today. I don't want anyone to walk out of here confused. John the Baptist understood that his ministry, ministry was temporary. And the one who was coming would perform a greater baptism. Think of it in terms of an introduction that's given. You have somebody who is coming to give an address. He's coming to give a speech. He's going to give a teacher Bible class. Or he's going to give a, a keynote address. And then you have somebody else who has been uh, assigned the responsibility to deliver the introduction. Alright, well, if your main speaker is scheduled to give a two-hour speech, your introduction, or say an hour speech for the main speaker, you don't want the guy coming up to give the introduction to go two hours, or three hours, or to spend so much time on the introduction that the, the main speaker only has like five minutes left over before everybody has to be dismissed. The introduction should be short. And it should accomplish what it's designed to do, that is, introduce the speaker. And then the, int the introducer is done. And he doesn't stay on the stage. He departs the stage and the main speak as the main speaker has come up to deliver the keynote address to deliver the deliver the main message see and if your job is the role of introduction then once you've done that your job's over this next speaker is going to actually be delivering the main message and the baptist knew that he knew that his was only temporary and something greater than him was about to be revealed. He says in verse 11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Alright. I want you to see how this works. And I think a lot of people separate out verse 11 from verse 12. And that's a mistake. Because verse 12 explains verse 11. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I want you to keep in mind here, the you message is directed towards Israel. As John the Baptist is a prophet ministering to Israel and preparing them for the coming of their Messiah. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There are other messages that the Lord will get into that use the same imagery, that use the same teaching to point to the judgment at the end of the age that point to the, the believers that are protected, gathered into the barn, and the unbelievers that are removed, that are thrown into fire. All right? And this is what John the Baptist is speaking of. So if I can draw pictures, and we'll get to Malachi, and we'll get to Joel here in a moment. But keep in mind, I almost have a slideshow ready to go for this. I'm, I've drawn this picture out so many times that I thought, you know, I ought to have a slideshow that does this for me and uh, makes it easier to, to read, all right? And we're presently in the church age. Don't let that confuse you. That will, uh, that will conclude, hopefully, today if we hear the trumpet, all right? This is now the church. But don't let that confuse you with what we're talking about today because when we deal with John the Baptist and the coming Christ and these things that we're studying, it has nothing to do with the church, we're dealing with the dispensation of Israel. Israel is God's steward upon the earth. The Jewish people are God's stewards of His Word as ministers to the uh, human race, specifically to the Gentile nations that, among whom they lived. Now, following the dispensation of the church, when that is concluded, there is one final uh, age to uh, conclude the stewardship, to conclude, or in the next step of Israel's history, and that is the age of tribulation. All right, prior to this, and off my screen there to the left, 
The dispensation of Israel has had an age of promise, starting with Abraham. They've had an age of law, starting with the giving of the law, that Moses gave them the law at Sinai. Also, the age of the incarnation. Not every Bible teacher teaches it this way, but the ministry of Jesus Christ from baptism to ascension was a unique age in the dispensation of Israel. It was a unique age where something greater than the temple was with them, something greater than the law was with them, something greater than Solomon was with them. The Lord of the Sabbath was with them. And a lot of the Pharisees and Jewish people really struggled with the Lord's ministry, and yet it was something greater than the law, a unique age, all right? These were the three completed ages as of our perspective here this morning on November the 24th, 2004 A.D. But following the rapture of the church, when we go back to Israel's stewardship once again, the Jewish people will once again have the stewardship in their own economy, in their own dispensation. The next age in that unfolding here is the age of tribulation. And this is the tribulation of Israel. Don't confuse that with tribulation you and I face daily. Christ said in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We face tough times all the time, but that's not the same as to say the age of tribulation when Israel will be judged. All right, And so this period of time is what follows. Now at the end of this, when Christ returns, and he doesn't just come to the air, he actually lands all the way on the ground on the Mount of Olives. This is now second advent. I hope you're familiar with this. This ought to be review. We've uh, very often given the distinction between the rapture and the second advent. In the rapture, he descends to the clouds. We meet the Lord in the air and he takes us back to heaven because it's there that he's gone to prepare a place for us. John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. So when I come again and receive you to myself, we understand that, in, that uh, when he returns, he's going to take us to heaven to show us these places that he's been making all this time. Now, after this comes the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, all right? The kingdom. Starting, of course, with the millennial kingdom, and then we have the new heavens and the new earth after that. That's beyond what I'm going to talk about today. Now, when we talk about judgment... After me is coming one who is mightier than I. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Alright? What John is speaking of, he's speaking of second advent. He doesn't know it. Because we're in between first advent and second advent. We can see the two separate events. Old Testament prophets couldn't see two separate events. They just saw the Christ coming. So he's speaking of second advent, all right? Where he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And he will baptize you with fire. Two activities. Notice how it is explained in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. All right. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. As he gathers his wheat into the barn, believers receive the Holy Spirit. And enter into the millennial kingdom. As he throws the chaff into the fire. Chaff or tares, depending on which parable you're looking at and which imagery you're looking at. Here in verse 12 it's called chaff. Number in 13, we got wheat and tares. But here's the chaff. He will burn up with unquenchable fire. Here are the unbelievers thrown into the fire. They cannot enter into the millennial kingdom. They cannot enter into the millennial kingdom. Only believers enter into the millennial kingdom. And you say, you mean to tell me 
that when Jesus Christ returns, that he is going to publicly execute every believer, every unbeliever in the world? <laughs> yes. Not that there will be that many left over, to tell you the truth. When you read it in tribulation and you see a third of the world destroyed here and a third of the world destroyed there, and you see all the judgments that come with trumpets and vials and bowls, all right, there aren't going to be that many that actually survive to the end of Armageddon to uh, be separated like the sheep and the goats. But there will be some, some unbelievers that will physically survive. They found a hole deep enough to crawl into, and they tried to pull the mountains over themselves, tried to act like the Lord wasn't returning, okay? He will baptize you. Now, he's speaking specifically to Israel here. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this is the separating of the wheat and the chaff, where the wheat is gathered into the barn, entering into the millennial kingdom, provided the Holy Spirit. The chaff is thrown into hell, into the fire. All right, so I'm done drawing pictures. Let's look at some of these other passages. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. In good humor, we pronounce this Malachi. The famous Italian prophet. Malachi. Alright? Chapter 3. Now notice, behold, I'm going to send my messenger. In Hebrew, he says, behold, I'm going to send Malachi. <laughs> Malachi, a Moloch is a messenger or an angel, and uh, the I suffix means mine, and so uh, Moloch I is, is my messenger. Fascinating that he uses a, a prophet by the name of Malachi to talk about Malachi, to talk about my messenger, who isn't Malachi, but is John the Baptist, coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, and then ultimately Elijah himself. And it's interesting, when we get to chapter 4, he says, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. But at the beginning of chapter 3, he leaves it as a code word, so to speak. He says, I'm going to send my messenger. And he uses the prophet Malachi to say, I'm sending you Malachi. I'm sending you my messenger. And he will clear the way before me. And Jehovah, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Keep in mind how many people were truly seeking the Lord. When uh, in first advent, how many will truly be seeking the Lord in second advent? I think a lot more will be seeking the Lord in second advent because they're going to be undergoing hell on earth. Not very many were seeking the Lord in first advent. Will suddenly come to his temple and my messenger and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And... Um, that verse goes a long way to supporting the Moses and Elijah argument. There are other passages, I think, that go a long way to supporting the Enoch and Elijah argument. And I'm not going to answer that argument here today. But this verse goes a long way in answering the supporting the Moses and Elijah position of the two witnesses in tribulation. I'll let that go for the moment. Who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. See, here's judgment at the end of the tribulation, before those who can enter into the millennium can enter into the millennium. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. You know, the only way... The Levitical priesthood can possibly be purified. The only way that they can possibly be prepared to enter, to uh, offer their offerings here is to go through the fire here and to pass through the judgment here and to enter into here purified. That's why Israel has to go through such tribulation on earth. That's why this uh, judgment by fire here at Second Advent must be accomplished. So the dross and the garbage can be cleared away. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings of righteousness. So we see that it's second advent in its application. Not first advent, second advent. All right, come back with me now to the book of Joel. 
And we see likewise this promise of the Holy Spirit. This promise of the Holy Spirit is a second Advent promise. Amos, Obadiah, see, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. If you get to Amos, you've gone too far. Joel 2. And the setting for this is the great and terrible day of the Lord. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Nothing like a concept of imminency to give you the sense of urgency. And uh, some tremendous judgment that's coming. And the, the earth quakes, it says in verse 10. The heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great. For strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? That's verse 11. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. It's a message of repentance. It's a message of return. The Lord is about to hit earth with tremendous wrath and judgment. You need to get your heart right. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. It can't be a phony show. <laughs> See, some people, you can make a big show out of mourning and, oh, fasting, oh, look at me, aren't I holy, aren't I spiritual? Look, I've torn my garments, i got dust on my head, sackcloth and ashes, and I'm not eating food, and I'm not drinking alcohol, and I'm not sleeping with my wife, and I'm not doing all, I'm giving up all these things so I can get holy. Well, you can have that phony show if you want. But it's got to be legitimate if it has any value. Your father who sees in secret will repay. And here he says, rend your heart and not your garments. It's the internal repentance that's needed. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. In any event, this is a powerful, powerful passage here. I'm getting I'm, I'm just showing you where the context for this is. And by the way, this can be done on an individual basis. This can be done on a corporate basis, which you will notice in verse 15. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and let the bride out of her bridal chamber. In other words, go ahead and put all weddings on hold. Uh, get all the family members together, the elders, the parents, the young people. Let's get everybody together. And let's get serious about this prayer ministry. Let's get serious about repentance. Now this is in the context for this is Israel, the nation of Israel. But could the church have an application of this as well? If under a sense of urgency the pastor says, you know what? We need to get serious about prayer. We don't have nearly enough people in our prayer meetings we need to get more people at our prayer meetings. And so we would change the language up here a little bit. We'd say, get the pastor, get the deacons, get the pastor's wife, the deacon's wives, the Sunday school teachers. Get the elders, the older believers. Get the younger believers. Get the people who just got saved yesterday. Get everybody in here. And let's proclaim a fast. A solemn assembly. Let's consecrate a fast. Let's get serious about our prayer life. Anyway, there is a church age application of this. I will develop more of that in future studies. Now notice, um, verse 28. It will come about after this. All right. So if, if we've set the timetable for all this, you understand we're dealing with the Great Tribulation. We're dealing with Armageddon. We're dealing with the return of Jesus Christ at Second Advent. And he comes and he destroys the armies that are against them and he delivers them into safety. All right, happy ending, tribulation ends, God wins, here's the kingdom. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Okay, The sending forth of the Holy Spirit is a promise, but it is a promise here. It is a promise after second advent as believers receive the Holy Spirit. Now, he says, I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. This can only be achieved if all mankind is 100% believers. 
recognizing that believers enter into the kingdom. And what's happening to the unbelievers? They're being removed. What did Elijah do when that contest was over? He executed the prophets of Baal. What is Jesus Christ going to do when tribulation is over? He is going to execute the unbelievers from this world. For Gentiles, it's called sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25. For Jews, it's called the wilderness judgment of Ezekiel chapter 20. But the principle is the same in both places. Believers enter into the millennium. Unbelievers are executed. They are sentenced to physical death. Their bodies are slain. Their soul and spirit is cast into the fire, cast into hell. Into Hades, as we say. And once every last unbeliever is removed from the planet, and all we have left are believers, Jewish believers, Gentile believers, all we have left are believers, then when the Holy Spirit is sent, this verse can be fulfilled. I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. On all mankind. Do not believe for a minute that this verse was fulfilled on Pentecost. Because when the church began at Pentecost, the Spirit wasn't poured out on all mankind. It was only poured out upon those believers there in the upper room. And then it was gradually poured out upon others as the gospel message spread. And as other Old Testament saints were ushered into the church. We find periodic usherings of the Holy Spirit as... Paul and Peter and the apostles went around and, and more and more Jewish believers came to understand that the Christ had come. And they were ushered into the, into the church and they received the Holy Spirit. But Pentecost was not worldwide and it was not on all flesh. This is worldwide. I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. So understand the setting for believers receiving the Holy Spirit fulfills Joel 2, 28. It was not fulfilled at Pentecost when the church began. Joel 2.28 is fulfilled at second advent. Once unbelievers are removed and the Holy Spirit enters into this world once again. I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy. So the whole human race receives the Holy Spirit, Jews and Gentiles alike, believers that enter into the, into the millennium. But it is the Jewish believers that not only receive the Holy Spirit, but will also be ushered into a prophetic office. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, that is, the nation of Israel. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. So this is what the Baptist is doing. This is what he's announcing. He is announcing the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is announcing you've got to get your heart right. He is announcing that this baptism is about to be, is about to be laid down on the earth. Again, if I have to draw pictures, I will. We uh, sometimes get confused because of the two advents of Jesus Christ. First Advent, Second Advent. And to us, it seems weird that John the Baptist arises here and he's, he's delivering a message that in our mind is more appropriate for here. Is this making sense? All right. And it's because he's looking to the kingdom and he's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand and he's giving them that message of repentance. All right. And we get confused and we say, well, wait a minute. Shouldn't that message be given here? <laughs> Isn't he talking about second advent? Isn't he talking about um, casting the unbelievers into hell and, and uh, pouring forth the Holy Spirit upon believers? We get confused. We say, it sounds awful lot like John the Baptist has a second advent message. He does. <laughs> he does have a second advent message. That's what I spent two weeks trying to tell you here. Because 
in terms of first advent and second advent, Old Testament uh, prophets weren't given that distinction. They didn't know there were two different advents. See, we're in between here as the church, and we can look back with our 2020 hindsight, and we can look forward, and we can see clearly, hey, there's two occasions here. But John the Baptist didn't know that. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, none of those guys knew that. Malachi didn't know that. John the Baptist himself didn't know that. We have the advantage of being able to see in between the Testaments. And I've given this to you many times, but 1 Peter 1.10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ, first advent, and the glories to follow, second advent. They were confused. And they were looking for answers. And they, sit and they, they made careful searches and inquiries. First Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Trying to, to determine which person or time. Which person or time. They saw a suffering Messiah. They saw glories. <laughs> And they said, this doesn't add up. This doesn't compute. How is this going to work? Is it a person issue? Are there two different Christs? Some of them would have speculated that. Some of them would have speculated that. They would have said, well, maybe there's a, a suffering Christ and maybe there's a glorious Christ. And John the Baptist even sent a, a messenger to the Lord and said, uh, should I be looking for another one? I understand there's all this suffering going on. I'm in prison. You're going to suffer. You've already been under some persecution. Are you the suffering Christ? And is there a glorious Christ about to come? See, they were seeking to determine the person or the time. Are there two different people involved? Is there a suffering Christ and a glorious Christ? Or is it a time issue? We know now that it is a time issue. He came one time in first advent. He's coming a second time in second advent. We understand now it's the same person, just two different times. But back then they didn't know. And they, they were confused and they, made, weren't, they weren't sloppy. They went to the Lord and asked and they were told, it's not for you. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. That they wanted to know the distinction between first advent and second advent, and it was revealed to them, that's not for them to know, that that was church age mystery doctrine. Revealed to the apostles and prophets, only the church could learn the distinctions between first advent and second advent and how these things all worked. So, from the standpoint of John the Baptist, he's doing his job. He's delivering this repentance message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, because that's what he's called to deliver. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when the Christ comes, is going to come all this judgment. So, When we come back next week, we will move on to point four, that the herald fulfilled his purpose when the Christ appeared. He fulfilled his purpose when the Christ appeared. He said, here is the Christ. And we actually get to the event. And he said, what are you doing here? I have reason. That I need to be baptized by you. I don't need to baptize you. You don't need to confess any sins. You don't need to forsake things. You don't need to repent. You don't need to prepare your heart for the coming of yourself. <laughs> we need to prepare our heart for the coming of you. So we can enter into the kingdom. And then you can baptize me and all of us with the Holy Spirit eternally. So he's a little bit confused here. And Christ says, permit it at this time. He just says, you know, trust me. <laughs> Permitted at this time. I realize you're confused. I realize as far as you know, we're about to throw off Rome and set up a kingdom and things are going to be 
wonderful here, but see, you haven't yet figured out that the cross has to precede the crown. So we'll tackle that beginning one week from today, rapture pending. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, that when there are things that are difficult to understand, we can make careful searches and inquiries. And if you intend for us to learn it, we'll learn it. If you intend for us to not see these things yet, but simply take them by faith, well, then that's your business too, Father. The secret things of the Lord belong to the Lord. But the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. We want to we want to learn these things, and yet at the same time, Father, we don't want to just simply accumulate knowledge. We don't want to just simply gather facts. Father, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So as you increase us in knowledge, increase us also in grace. Let us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let us grow in love so that we're not just clanging gongs, but let us express love for the benefit of one another. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.